Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, his ministry. May he be with you and us tonight. I've got a lot to present, so I'm going to forego all the announcements and insights and ads for right now and get right to it. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we uh, pray those who are seeking for truth and they, as they tune in to the archives, to YouTube, here live streaming on television, the NRB network, Roku, wherever they're finding it, that you will uh, open up eyes and ears, that you'll correct the stupid things I say that are not true, and uh, but you'll help us in spirit and truth know you. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. So here we go, out of the closet for good. May the Lord abide. Uh, we have taken the time to rehearse Calvinism and Mormonism's view of soteriology. Soteriology is the word of how does God save man? And um, we've looked at the way they have said he has elected to save us. Many of you unable to see the bigger picture being presented here, a picture that really relates to the Mormon Christian debate. That's why we've done it. Everything we do relates to that Mormon Christian debate because if we are talking to Latter-day Saints who say, I want to come out of Mormonism, and they walk into a faith where people say, this is what, how God saves you, versus another Christian faith that says, this is how God saves you, we want to go through it and explain it. Some of you have written, said you're not going to watch anymore. Others of you have been annoyed by our uh, talking about Calvinism, said you're going to pull your financial support. I don't know what you want. We're going to do this and proceed. If you don't have a clue how the LDS and the Calvinists suggest God redeems humankind, go back and watch our past five or six shows. For the most part, the two doctrines of salvation are made fairly clear, what the LDS believe and what the uh, five-point Calvinists believe. Tonight, I'm going to propose an alternative to Calvinism, Mormonism, Arminianism, and open theism, which I'll explain in a minute. The alternative is, and here's a graphic for you, supported by a contextual view of the Bible as a whole, admits to a sovereign God, an all-knowing God, an omnipotent God, an omnipresent God, and yet it also allows for his granting free will to all human beings. It also agrees that God is just, merciful, and, in, and uh, loving in the highest sense of the word, it admits that there is a literal hell. It acknowledges the biblical reality of a lake of fire for those who reject Christ. And it assures and underscores the fact that Jesus is the only way. Uh, no other. Is such a soteriological presentation possible? Can we have a God who is sovereign, completely sovereign, and yet allows for free will? who is loving and yet then also uh, uh, has a lake of fire, so to speak. I think so, and in the end, it is a viable response to the untenable notion that a truly loving God would, with foreknowledge of everybody who comes to earth, create most of them to burn forever in a literal hell uh, and then, because he is good and loving, choosing a few select ones to spend eternity in a splendorific joy. So this ignored biblical approach, which I am going to suggest, does not deny justice in any way, shape, or form, does not negate the horrific realities of hell or the lake of fire, nor does it take from the abundant blessings men and women receive for choosing in this life to follow Jesus Christ by faith. In fact, the joyful abundance of choosing and receiving Christ in this life are made more clear as we pursue this important biblical perspective, which is denied and ignored by most. What biblical perspective am I talking about? The biblical fact that God will, or God's will, will always be accomplished. He will have his will done. Two, that his will, his permissive will, and his expressed will has, from the beginning, been that all humankind 
will be reconciled to him by and through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ, and that what we call eternal punishment, either in hell or in the lake of fire, which awaits those who are not part of the first resurrection, is not punitive, but is purgative and restorative and a process that will occur for who knows how long as a means to bring all men and women to ultimately on bended knee and to confess with their mouth that Jesus is the Lord. So let's get working on this biblical perspective that I lean strongly toward and how it altogether stomps on both Mormon soteriology and, and the five summary points of Calvinism, either hyper-Calvinism or reformed Calvinism uh, that is perpetuated today. And let me start off with you tonight really quickly that what, what got me started in this line of thinking. I think it's really important to know that prior to investigating this subject, remember, I have been ensconced in, in studying Mormonism relative to biblical Christianity. And that's where I have been for all these years. And I haven't had time to really look at these other things that I just assumed were true. So I, I, hell and the lake of fire, I believed, because I was taught this way, were final destinations for every unbeliever. And I never would have believed otherwise, um, except for this came about just at the right time in my life. God knows what he's doing when the student is ready to learn the teacher appears being him. Uh, I say this to make it known um, that the LDS view of uh, there being three kingdoms for everybody and, and essentially it's kind of a universalist appeal that almost everybody has some sort of kingdom has not influenced me at all. I, I have for years uh, just gone the party line with Christianity that hell's forever, lake of fire forever, and those who don't believe are there forever and ever and ever, etc. What has mattered is scripture and plain and simple interpreted fairly and in context of the whole thing, not just selected passages. So even the distasteful tenets of Calvinism, which I knew existed, didn't keep me from saying, no, God is sovereign and most people are going to go to hell. So there we were one Sunday afternoon in our Hebrew study, we're in chapter one, and we come across uh, in that chapter, the writer, he is attempting to show that Jesus is greater than angels. And he asks a question of the early Jewish converts to the faith. This is what he asks in Hebrews 1.13. To which of the angels has God ever said, sit thou on my right hand until I put thy enemies as a stool for thy feet? That was the question that is asked in Hebrews. Now, of course, the writer was pointing that God has never said anything of the sort to any angel. And this, the writer actually borrows from Psalm 91. That's where that passage comes from. That sit thou on thy right hand until I put the enemies as a stool under your feet. Well, when Jesus was alive, he quoted that passage too from Psalms and he applied it to himself. And then later on, that's in uh, Matthew 22, 43. And then Peter, later in Acts, he takes that passage and he applies it to Christ. So obviously it's a significant passage, but it wasn't the fact that it talks about God not, not saying that to any angel that struck me. The line that hit me was the fact that the passage says that Christ will sit at the right hand of the Father until, that's what it says, until he makes all his enemies his footstool. And when I read that, I, I thought, until, well, what's gonna happen afterward? What, what's, what's going on? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father until the, all the enemies are gathered together and submitted, and then what? And so I started, I started looking at, well, what, what then? What will Christ do then? Now, a footstool, of course, is something that we put our feet on when we sit in a chair. And so the imagery is God says, listen, you're going to be at my right hand until all the enemies are under your feet. And you have essentially subdued them all. And that's how long you'll be at my right side, entirely subdued. So the simple question led me to pursue other passages. And... The thing about it is, is when you allow yourself to look in the light of scripture with a new perspective, you can't help but start to see things in a new way. So Philippians 2.10 came up. This is what it says. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of the things in heaven, the things in earth, and the things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. Everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. And there's another passage that says, no one can confess Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit prompts them to. So we have the Holy Spirit prompting people under the earth to confess that Jesus is Lord. And under the earth is the place that we've always designated as hell. So that got me thinking. About the same time, a good sister named Margot gave me a book. Now, you have to understand, I am constantly getting books mailed to me, DVDs handed to me, read this, read that. People want to clear me up and teach me what's true. And I have very little time to read or watch them. Very little, stacks of them, and I'd never get around to them. But I got this book, and I was just consumed to try to understand it. And it didn't even have a title that was engaging. It was a strange title to this book. So I opened it up, and when I started reading it, it led me to more scriptures. For instance, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is talking about the resurrection, look at what it says. Listen, use your heart and mind and eyes and spiritual eyes to see. It says, but every man, talking about resurrection, in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming, then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So there's that concept again that was in Hebrews. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. That makes you wonder, what's he talking about? Now listen to these last two verses. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he said all things are put under him, it is manifest, it's obvious that he is accepted from this, which did put all things under him, meaning Jesus isn't included in the all things. Listen to 28. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now, that God may be all in all. We're talking about limited atonement. We're talking about a very select few. We're talking about all this stuff that we have wandered around and said, and here we have that God may be all to some, no. All, uh, that God may be all in a limited way, no. It's that God may be all in all. I mean, look at the verse again and count how many times I read all. You ready? The last enemy shall be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, and he hath said all things are put under him. It is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. Listen, and when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Seven times in that passage, all, 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 all. Not some, not a few, all. Now, as biblical Christians, we know that hell is a reality. We're going to be talking about that in the next few weeks. Anyone who rejects that idea is not speaking from biblical truth. There are people who say there is no hell. That's not a biblical truth. It's a reality. It's there. Lake of fire, same thing. But we also know from Scripture, speaking of God, that it says in 1 Timothy 2.4, God, who will have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, the Calvinist says, well, he would like that. No, apparently not. Apparently not. He knew beforehand he wouldn't have all. How could he have all if he knew and he wouldn't and he has enemies, etc.? We also know from Scripture that Jesus atoned for the sins of the whole world. And then we must add in the indisputable fact that God has, to the whole equation, elected certain nations and certain people for certain things at certain times. For example, we know from scripture that God elected the nation of Israel, the Jews, back in the day as a people. Romans 3 tells us he did this so that they would bring forth the law, the oracles of God, and bring forth the Messiah. 
So it was through the nation of Israel that the Messiah came and the oracles of God, the Bible that we have today. God elected, chose that nation to do it. He also chose, if you didn't think about this, for that nation to kill and reject the Messiah. If you wanted to think about it, he, he knew that they would do that as well. Uh, again, he's chosen all of us in different ways for our different propensities. But from all of this, he is able to bring about his good will. The fact that that nation brought forward the word, the fact that they brought forth the Messiah, the fact that they killed the Messiah, it's brought forth all his good will along the way. But when the nation of Israel were in the game, when Israel was all that and they were God's chosen people, they had no, absolutely no idea that anybody else was gonna come along and be chosen too. To them, they were like, we are all that. There's no one that's coming. Remember their reaction when Peter starts to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, the great unwashed? The Jews were like, no way. There's no one else. In fact, they still think that today, some of them, the Orthodox Jews. There's nobody else. We are God's chosen. Those Christians, they're not some. They could not fathom that God was going to allow others to come in, okay? Beyond belief. Contrary to their ideas, the Lord opened up the gates, didn't he? And he has since that time continued to choose and elect a church, a bride of Christ, who would in this life look to Christ and say, I believe, I'm gonna follow him, I'm gonna suffer in this life, follow him, I will be part of his body, I will be part of his church. True believers, okay? And as believers, we have seen firsthand that God, as he chose the nation of Israel, has also elected people from the Gentiles to be part of the church of Christ, okay? So have you ever asked yourselves, is it possible? Is it possible that just as the Jews thought that they were all that and nobody else were allowed access to God, that we too, as part of the body of Christ right now, could be making the same mistake and thinking that everything begins and ends with us? Isn't that a little bit kind of like what they did? Didn't they say we're all that and now the Gentiles? Aren't we saying, well, we're all that and then maybe God has a further purpose for all? Is that possible? Is it possible who those who go to the lake of fire to be purged and to then bow and confess might also come forth and bring to fruition God's will that all men would be saved? Is that possible or is it absolutely not possible? Like the example we gave a few weeks ago, the lifeguard sitting on the tower and he saves 10 people's lives that day. And the boss comes up and says, how was your day? And he said, well, I saved 10 people's lives. And, and he says, well, how many drown? Well, none, I saved 10. Oh, well, you gotta let a few drown. That way it makes the 10 that you saved more valuable. You see, that's the thinking behind this. That, listen, he saved some, so he's got to burn up others forever and ever in order to make the sum he saved more to prove his glory. Why not his glory to save all in and through Christ? I don't know. Whatever brand of Calvinist a person might end up being, all admit that God is sovereign and his sovereign will is accomplished. But not one of them believe that God's sovereign will could possibly be the ultimate reconciliation of all. Now that, I find that really remarkably sad and myopic and egocentric. To them, his will is that only some, really only a few, are saved and then the rest get what they deserve by burning, literally burning eternally in the fires of hell or the lake of fire. Now again, I fully embrace the idea that God is wholly sovereign, don't get me wrong, and this, that his will will be done. Scripture supports this, I'm gonna give you a few, you ready? Psalms 115.3, but our God is in the heavens, he has done whatever he has pleased. Proverbs 19.21, there are many devices in a man's heart, nevertheless the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Jesus said in Matthew 19.26, with God, all things are possible. Ephesians 1.11, speaking of Jesus, says, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. 
Revelation 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Daniel 4.35 adds, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Amazing passages showing that God is sovereign. He gets done what he wants done. Psalms 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Listen to the extent Proverbs 16.4 takes this idea saying, The Lord has made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for that day of evil. In other words, even the wicked to accomplish things evil that need to be done to bring about his complete will, like killing Christ and other evil things that are done. He is in control and he uses it. As an exclamation point on the whole matter, listen to Isaiah 45, five through nine. I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they might know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Drop down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe unto him that strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say unto him that fashioned it, What makest thou, or thy work? He has no hands. Of course, it wouldn't be complete if I didn't add in citing Romans 9 where Paul says, has not the, pow the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? This is a favorite of the Calvinists, that God has made some or could make some vessels of honor. He has, and some vessels of dishonor. He has me. I'm a vessel of dishonor. Luckily, his son came along and saved me and the rest of us, according to God's goodwill and purpose. From these passages and many, many more, we know God does whatever he pleases, that his counsels will stand, that we are predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, and that he even created all things for his own pleasure when we read in Proverbs that he made all things for himself, even the wicked, and that in Isaiah it says he has created, uh, he has the power to create one vessel for honor and another for dishonor, one for heaven, one for hell, what are we to think? Well, for starters, we have to agree he is sovereign, period, no questions about it, but is he despotic and is he capricious and is he unloving in his sovereignty? Is it really his will that one, some, many, most are going to go and burn forever and ever and ever and ever in eternity or be annihilated as some are now saying? Again, for some reason, Calvinists seem to think God is sovereign, but he's a sovereign meanie and they lose the idea that he is love and has been from the beginning. They will respond to comments like uh, mine to say, you're humanizing God. Well, you're just a man. You think in terms of, well, God would be like me. He would be, he would be more kind. Uh, you know, why, I, how come God can't think like I do? And the Calvinists will say, well, you're just an evil man to think that he would save everybody. Listen to what Jesus said. He says, what man of you, if his son asks him for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, the man will give him a serpent. If you then, talking to men, are being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more, more, shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good gifts to them that ask him? See, it's the opposite of what the Calvinists say. The Calvinists say, listen, you're, you're, you're just a man. You, of course you're gonna think everybody should have a chance, but God is God, and he is this, and he is that, and he wants to wipe out evil, and we are just fortunate. He's selected a few people to live with him after this life. What kind of God do you worship? I mean, I mean, do you really, do you really believe that's what he is? 
When Jesus says, listen, a father who is evil knows how to treat his kids well with gifts. What do you think the father of lights will be like? Unbelievable. What do we say about 1 John 1, 5? It says, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What do we do with passages that describe God as loving with the kind of love that never fails? Agape love never fails. That depicts him as more merciful than a cold glass of water to a man in the desert, more long-suffering than 10,000 Jobs, more forgiving than any human parent. We ignore them? Just ignore that stuff? Go back with me way back before the world and the heavens were to before all things, that before all things place that scripture describes, to the place where all we can say is God. That's it. We don't say heaven, we don't say earth, we just say God. Go back to me, with me there. Did God know all things prior to creating one thing? Certainly, certainly, he had to. Knowing the beginning from the end, did this God whom John the Beloved describes as love, not as containing or, or having love, but love completely, know all things prior to creating each and one of us? He had to. Not only because scripture says he did, but if he didn't, he would be surprised by us. And if he was surprised by us, then he would cease to be God. This leaves us facing a tremendous biblical conundrum, one where the answer provided has plagued me since I could think about spiritual things. We are told he is light, we are told he is love, we are told he is control and his will will be done, but in order to make sense of eternal punishment, we have agreed to say insidious things like, well, it's his will that most human beings will burn forever in his absence. We haven't been able to reconcile the two. Finding such statements repulsive in an effort to get around them, other men have come along and made other propositions today. There's a guy who preaches open theism, and open theism says God does not know everything. He therefore is surprised by things that happen, but he's completely equipped to handle them. Because open theism is not biblical, I reject it. Then there's Calvinism. His pinched nose system works. It works. But it certainly paints God as a fairly cold despot of sorts, doesn't it? I mean, evil men, evil men have more of a heart than God in the Calvinist view. That, that, that's, that's absolutely reprehensible. Then there are the other non-biblical approaches that try to explain all this, Smith's Mormonism, and uh, which removes God's sovereignty completely, and it places everything in the hands of men and women to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling and exclude God from the mix so that when they die, they can go on to become gods. That's the Mormon thing. And that's bleak. How come none of these isms, Calvinism, Mormonism, open theism, how come none of them ever suggest that God is wholly sovereign and he will bring about total reconciliation? How come no one ever says that? Have they considered passages like Isaiah 55, 8 through 11, which says to man, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. I mean, knowing God is love and good, how do they read Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, where God says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that ex executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. As a God of love from eternity to eternity, what is his pleasure? What would be his will? What would be his purpose? What do we think when we read Jeremiah 29, 11, when God says, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. 
That's a hopeful message. What does it mean in the face of all this information when we read in 2 Peter, and you Calvinists out there, check the Greek on this verse. It's gonna blow your mind. But 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What processes has he put in place? He's, he's elected a nation. He's brought a Messiah to save the Gentiles. What about the reprobates? Does the lake of fire have anything to do with bringing them around and bringing them to their knees and their mouth confessing? Is that part of his sovereign will and how he brings about his good pleasure? What does 1 Timothy 2, 3, 4 mean when it says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who will have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? Somehow we have, come, we have to come to terms with all of this information, not just the certain ones, not just uh, stuff, uh, and we refuse to embrace uh, 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 some new things that we're seeing in Scripture. Instead, we just cling to tradition and say, this is what Christianity means, heaven and hell, burning forever and joy for me. I, it doesn't make sense. Go with me really quickly back to the beginning, prior to where God created the heavens and earth and all that in them is. If God knew he was gonna create beings that would become kindling for hell, burning forever and ever in flames, real flames, and created them anyway, calling it his good pleasure, we have a serious problem with other verses in scripture that call him love, good, mercy, and holy. And we have a tremendous issue with God telling us uh, when he describes love in 1 Corinthians 13, that it never fails, that he gives up on it, that he himself stops pursuing in love. We have a real problem with that, don't we? In my humble opinion, Calvin has provided the world with a myopic and therefore limited view of God, emphasizing his sovereignty while either ignoring or redefining what love really is. On the other hand, Arminianism, therefore Mormonism, as a response to Calvinism, refutes God's sovereignty and places it all in the hands of men to save themselves and then to maintain their salvation. God, can God be just, merciful, loving, and completely sovereign? As I mentioned last week, he does it by and through his foreknowledge. There, here's the key. He controls by foreknowledge, not by force. We get a picture of this foreknowledge when we look at the story of Joseph who was sold into Egypt by his brothers. He gets thrown into a prison, he goes through literal hell, he's in that place, he then gets taken out of the prison after years and years, he goes and becomes a prince, he oversees all the gathering of food, the nation of Israel is starving, uh, it wasn't a nation of Israel yet, but uh, the, 12 the 12 sons are starving with their father, and they come to Egypt, and they realize the brother that we sold into Egypt is now the prince, and they felt terrible, they felt horrified being in his presence, and this is what Joseph says to them. But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as this day to save much people alive. How did a good and loving God, in light of the free will choices he knew humans would make before creating them, still create them knowing some of them would suffer for the choices that they have taken? Additionally, how is he able to have his will done in the face of free will choices? Foreknowledge, my friends, foreknowledge. Listen, his omniscient foreknowledge existing in the glory of pure love allows for human beings and angels and saints and demons to freely choose while at the same time giving him total and ultimate control over how everything ends. This is where he becomes all in all. Remember what God said in Isaiah 42, nine, behold, the former things are come to pass, the new things do I declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. What, consider Psalms 33:11. the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. He knew from the beginning what he was doing. Speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel said, there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and make known the, uh, to the King Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Speaking of the day when heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but of that day and hour no man knoweth, not the angels of heaven nor the Son of Man, but 
my father only. That's foreknowledge. In describing himself, Peter said of himself that he was elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling the blood of Jesus Christ. Even when it comes down to the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, we know it did not occur by indiscriminate actions of the Jews or the Romans or of Satan himself, but by and through the foreknowledge of God, he set it all up. Did God force Satan or the Jews or the Romans to do what they did? Not in the least. They chose. But God, knowing all things, allowed them to do what they chose to do to bring about his sovereign will, which was the reconciliation of all men to himself. Listen to Acts 2, 23. Peter speaking to a group of Jews on the day of Pentecost, and he says to them, him, meaning Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel, that means God's counsel, and foreknowledge of God, he was delivered by that, by the foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. When Jesus was taken by the Jews, was there any surprise to God at this? Not at all. Again, listen to what Peter says. Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God to them, and now where they took him and with wicked hands crucified and slayed him. This passage grants us two seemingly incongruent facts. God knew and man chose. So let's go back and ask ourselves, who is responsible for the mess of this world that we're in today? I'm gonna give you three choices. Satan, man, or God? You think. Scripture says God. He chose, he's done it all for to bring about his purposes in the end. I'll give you the passages if you want. I don't have them here. He's purposed it all by and through his foreknowledge to bring about his ultimate will, which is the total reconciliation of all humanity at some point or another. Did Adam and Eve, did he know Adam and Eve would sin? Of course he did. No surprise. That Satan, did Satan thwart God's plan? Not in the least. Did Adam and Eve have free will to choose? Absolutely. You bet. But for this reason, Scripture says Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. It was a done. It was a foregone conclusion, God knew. And it was all taken care of from the beginning, almost done. We know from Scripture that God is good, light, love. He desires good, expected end, not an evil one. We know that out of his good pleasure and out of his loving good pleasure, because God is love, that he created all things, knowing beforehand how all things would freely live and choose and walk and be because he is a good God and a good God adores freedom, not despotic force. So ask yourselves, let me ask this right before going to the phones. Prior to creating all things and possessing a complete foreknowledge of all the things that he was gonna create, would you say a loving, sovereign God would set out to ultimately redeem a few, that's Calvinism. Some, that's Arminianism and Mormonism. Or all, that's true Christianity. In the weeks to come, we will embark, now that this foundation is set, to explain what the Bible says about him, his ways, and how eternal punishment is played out in the Greek. We have a full house of calls. Tom in Washington, D.C., Dan in Vancouver, Alicia in Salt Lake, and Mark in Boise, Idaho. Tom, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. You're on the air, my friend. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just want to preface this by saying um, I, I watch your show on YouTube a lot, um, mostly because um, I, you know, I'm not Mormon and I was Christian. But um, I'm actually writing a paper, and um, I may warn you that I may quote you on some of the stuff we say tonight or during this call, if that's okay in the paper I'm writing. Sure. Okay, so I guess the, I mean. I'm an Certainly. atheist, and I guess the main uh, objection I have to what you bring to the table is um, you're using your interpretation of the Bible as you see it, comparing it to a Mormon's interpretation of, of their view. Um, you, you're saying, I'm right, you're wrong. But isn't this, when it boils down to it, just like a no-true uh, no Scotsman fallacy where, um, you know, I'm a true Scotsman would never, I'm, you're familiar with that argument where, um, uh, a true Scotsman would never do this, but then another says, well, you're not a true Scotsman because you think this way. So I guess my question to you is, 
how, how do you justify it with but obviously belief in God, your belief in God is like the default position because you were you were Mormon, you believed in God, but then you figured that you were worshiping God the wrong way, then you came to Christianity, and now you're worshiping the right way. But um, do you see the disconnect there? That's that's kind of like what I'm what the topic of my paper is about. Okay, let me let me try to answer uh, this conundrum. When I was LDS, I embraced what the LDS Church taught me, which was found in the Bible, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, and in their modern day Revelation, Book of Mormon. Right. Okay, so they had all kinds of external uh, uh, sources of scripture, inspired word of God that helped me form my belief in God. When you, when you were Mormon at that when time. When I was Mormon. Right. When I came to understand the facts about one, epistemology, how we know truth, and two, how those books of scripture came about, and I saw right. that they were fraudulent, I then said, of the four books they uphold, I look at the Bible. Right. So then I pursued to look to see what that, how that holds up to scrutiny, and it holds up pretty damn well. So, so then I so you're, so you're, you're pretty, pretty um, I'm gonna say convinced, but your interpretation of the, I don't know, the King James Bible, as you see it now, is, is, the, is more accurate to you now than um, compared to the Mormon fraudulent interpretation that you saw before. Right, and here's why. Because the Mormon fraudulent scripture were coming out of nowhere. Right, right. Yeah, and the Bible came out of somewhere. And so right. that, in and, in and of itself, that's one way which we determine uh, how something is true. God just didn't give us the Bible out of the air and say, believe it, like Joseph Smith gave his other books. He said, I'm gonna have this thing come about over 1500 year period by a bunch of different scholars who won't know each other or prophets who don't know each other and, and Dead Sea Scrolls are gonna validate it years and years and years, hundreds and thousands of years later and all this artifact and genetic and, and, and DNA and, and linguistic support for the Bible, that said to me, this has far more reliability especially its prophetic utterances is being fulfilled than anything Mormonism. So that's why I say I, I believe the Christian viewpoint is far stronger than the LDS. Okay, well, I, I guess I, I disagree with you on, on I, I, I guess I don't want to take too much time because I know this is more. Well, your disagree with me. Tell me, how, um, tell me how, tell me how my belief in Christianity is, is, is exactly the same as my belief in Mormonism when I was LDS. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I, I think that it's almost like you're going um, out of the frying pan into the fryer where when you're standing on the Holy Bible, um, when, I mean, let's get down to it. The, the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true. I mean, that's basically well, where you were arguing from. And, unfortunately, and I with that. unfortunately um, here's the problem, Tom, is... You're saying the Bible is true because it says it's true. The Bible doesn't say it's true. Yet you're not understanding the Bible. It's, it's, it's 66 books written in different places that coalesce into a perfect, it has, to be, uh, it has to be a collusion by men spread out over 1500 years to dupe the world. And that includes fixing uh, prophecy that you cannot dispute occurred. So to compare Mormonism and my epistemological stance on Mormonism and saying I've jumped from the frying pan to the fire by embracing Christianity is completely set in ignorance. Because at least now I have something that has substance and something that has research, something that comes from original languages that we can look at, that has yeah. manuscript evidence. I mean, we're talking apples and oranges. Well, yeah, I guess, I, I guess we're, we're gonna fundamentally disagree on how accurate we say the Bible is. Okay, well, you you, we, no, you can say it's inaccurate. Correct, and you I can, just completely disagree with that opinion. No, but wait, Tom you, can, Tom, you can say the Bible is inaccurate. That's fine. I don't. I mean, it has inaccuracies now, but you can say that. That's not the problem. The point is there is a basis for it. There's no basis for LDS scripture other than Joseph said, <laughs> I Yeah, I, I mean, I, get, I understand that. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Do you really understand that, Tom? Do you, you know, really I, when understand you that? the Mormon? I'm not. I'm not. I don't. You know. I've heard you have the Mormon callers and kind of break down their their where they get their information from in the Book of Covenants and all. That. Like I've heard. I've heard you go through that that yeah. routine. And I and I, I I reject the Book of Mormon and the Bible and the Quran and every other holy book because I think they're all just as faulty. And here's as any the other problem book. So with that, Tom. I, I've just taken your 
disagreement with the Book of Mormon just one step further Okay, the, the Bible, back, and then another step further to every other religion okay, that's, that's ever really, been conceived by man. So, that's that's I, really easy to do, Tom, but you're doing it in ignorance. My, my challenge to you is read a book by no, Dr. Norman Geisler. Read a book of how the Bible came about. Read who it, is that, Norman Geisler? Yeah, read, read a book by Norman Geisler, how the Bible came about. Just read that book and then say that you can compare the Bhagavad Gita or the uh, Muhammad's book that was, came to him in a cave by revelation and Joseph's book that came to him by revelation or Mary Aker, Baker Eddy's books and all. You cannot compare the two. They are, they are night and day in difference in support. Well, and, what's funny about that is talk to a, um, a devout Muslim and they'll say the exact same thing about the Bible. So, I mean, then, then where we are. Yeah, but all we got to do is say, well, Muslim, where did your Quran come from? It came from a guy going to a cave and receiving revelation, and he wrote it down. One guy, well, Joseph Smith, same, one guy. Uh, We're talking a 1,500-year And the same truth claims about uh, uh, historical accuracy and the same truth claims about, you know, the same, the same truth claims you make about your Bible. Um, so, I mean, so, so then you've got two people that have 100% faith in their They're Holy not Ghost. the same truth Obviously, claims. You can't both be right. They're not I mean, the same truth claims, Tom. They're not. You're, you're saying they are, but you are not seeing the Bible for what it is. If, you, if the Bible came from one guy in a, one setting and it came to us, I would hold it up to the same scrutiny as I do Joseph's books or the Quran or any of these others. But we have a substantive book that was put together over a course of real history that the Bible records and teaches us the real history and the workings of God through those people to bring about his will. I challenge you, call back when you have read a Geisler book on how we got the Bible and then say, okay, I still believe, Sean, that they're all the same. All right? Uh, okay, well, I appreciate you taking my call. Right. And, um, I hope I came out and, uh, better than I sounded in your paper. Mormonism, the better. All right, thanks, man. All right, thanks for taking my call. Bye. Okay, bye. We're going to Dan in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, I'm guessing. Dan. Hey, Sean, how are you? Doing well, how are you? I'm good, thank you. We spoke, I don't know, six months ago, something like that. You might remember the call, but that was uh, offline. Just a comment to Tom, who is uh, just on. The question I would ask to Tom is, why is he watching if these questions don't bother him? Why, why is he watching if he's so sure about everything? Anyways. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of fuel for your fire, and then I'm going to tell you why I can't go down the route of, of holding that purgatory is the case. Uh, I, I got the feeling you were going to go this way because you read that poem a couple of weeks ago that was sort of clearly laying out a position that there's yeah. such a thing as purgatory. Um, you did not mention the parable of the unmerciful servant, which gives, um, gives that kind of perspective because the, the servant is given mercy by his master, and then he does not extend mercy on a very much smaller debt to another person. And at the end of the parable, it says, and what will the master do to that servant? He will throw him into prison and torture him until he has paid back every last penny. So that, that's, that's a, um, a parable, that's a piece of scripture that I would say would support, support the notion of purgatory. And the reason is, is because it says until he has paid. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I want to make that clear to the audience. Strange verse in First or Second Peter where Jesus uh, it says that Jesus went and, and preached to the spirits in prison, right? And yeah. nobody can tell you what that means because there isn't a clear meaning to it. Right. But the reason that I can't hold the position of purgatory, because it's, or at least I would never embrace it, is it's kind of a form of universalism because it's really saying that everybody eventually gets to heaven no matter what they've done. Yeah. Now, that, that puts you in the position of it takes a, a certain degree of urgency away from sharing the gospel because you know, well, no matter how bad he is, even if he's come to the earth, eventually he's going to join me in heaven with Jesus when all of his sins have been purged out of him. Yeah. Now, one of the seminal arguments you made was that why would a good God manufacture or make people so that at some point he would then dispose of them into eternal fire? Yeah. Right? You would agree that you made that argument? I did, yeah. Now, the problem with that argument is that that is exactly what he did with his spiritual beings. But that's what he did with Satan and his angels. He made them with the foreknowledge that they would rebel from him. Yeah. And then Revelation 20, uh, 20 chapter 10, uh, verse 10 very clearly says that they will burn in the lake of fire forever and ever. It doesn't say until Satan's sins are burned off. It says he will burn in the lake of fire forever and ever. So holding, you know, making this argument that God wouldn't make something that he would ultimately permanently cause to suffer. Uh, it doesn't hold water when you consider that that's the position of the devil and his angels. Would okay, Dan, a couple things. 
first of all, we're going to get into the word uh, forever and ever in the Greek. We're going to see what it means contextually throughout Scripture. And that is going to uh, shed some light. Second of all, you're calling it purgatory. I, I don't like the word because of its ties to Catholicism. But I just believe that, that the lake of fire is a purging. And I yeah, think... like, Sean, let's not mince words. This is, this is the doctrine of purgatory. And I don't like the name purgatory either because it's associated with Catholicism. Yeah. But this is the position we're, that we're discussing. And I, I think it's okay to call it what it is. All right, well, in the root word purge, you're right. I would agree with that. Okay, yeah. and, 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 the, and the other thing is, and let me just say this clearly, and this is what I have found with many Christians. Well, whoop-de-doo, if that's true, Sean, let's just party on, and why, why am I a Christian now? I'll just tell my brother who's, a, who's an atheist, don't worry about it, party. We are ignoring, ignoring the horrific nature of both hell and the lake of fire, and simultaneously ignoring all the wonderful blessings that it is to be a Christian, both in this world and in the, word to, in the world to come, to be God's sons and daughters there. I'm not saying they're gonna come out and they're gonna be uh, in an equal footing. See, that's another thing. We make the assumption, oh, they're gonna come out and they're gonna be just like us. But gee, hey, we have no idea what it means. All I'm saying is reconciliation. I'm not talking about glory. I'm not talking about crowns. I'm not talking about mansions. We have no idea. Better resurrections. I mean, we know they're not gonna come in the first resurrection. That in and of itself is a great blessing. So we do this as Christians, uh, Dan, because we want to compartmentalize our thinking so we can feel secure in our argument. But I, all I'm saying is, who would wanna go to hell? Who would wanna go to a lake of fire? Who, who has a chance to know Jesus now wouldn't wanna come through the first resurrection, be a son of God and a daughter of God and have these opportunities rather than who knows what God will do to uh, those who refuse him? Well, I mean, but this brings up a very important point. Satan, in, in, not, in full knowledge of what heaven is like, what God is like, with, with perfect knowledge of all of what God is, decided to rebel. So I don't really find it all that surprising that people should rebel, because here, here's the dilemma. The logical extension of your argument is that even Satan himself will be redeemed. You can make that assumption. Well, I mean, you know, like if I'm you're going to argue say, I'm that Ion yes no. doesn't mean forever and ever, it means something else. It doesn't mean you forever. Might argue that Revelation 20:10 means that even the devil oh, could wait be. Wait till redeemed. we get to Revelation 20:10, Dan. You'll see. If you if you stay with us, uh, just hang on, and we'll get to the explanation of the Ainos and the uh, and the Aeon and what they mean and how the King James translators followed Augustine's lead in hell needing to be forever in order to burn the flesh away. And they did that, and so they translated Aeon and Aenos in a certain way so that when we read it, it says eternal forever and ever, but it doesn't mean that. And that's my whole... That's okay, one, one last thought. You know, it's not like I haven't struggled with these thoughts, right? Because nobody, nobody wants something that God has created to suffer forever, and, and certainly not God. Okay. But th this is how I rationalize this. I think that anybody who ends up in hell has chosen to be there. Okay. And anybody who ends up in heaven has not gotten there by, on their own. Okay. And, and I think you can choose to go to hell, and I think people do choose to go to hell. Okay. And I just can't escape. There's too, there's too much in the Bible about heaven being eternal. And not that I would say that near-death experiences are tremendous, um, are tremendous evidence because they can't be validated, they yeah. can't be verified. But the position that hell is not hell is not eternal does go against many um, uh, oh, negative near-death experiences. Oh, Dan, now we're, we're scraping. Now we're scraping on the near. Oh, no, I understand. Okay. I understand. Okay, so Dan, let me let me ask you something. Yes. Okay, so you're saying that they choose hell. Yes. Do, are you saying that every knee under the earth will not bow and every tongue will not confess that Jesus is the Lord? Oh, I, I believe that they'll confess that he's Lord, but that doesn't mean they go to heaven. Okay, so what are they doing the confessing for? If they have chosen hell rebelliously, what are they doing the confessing for? Because, it's, because they're forced to admit that forced it is not. They're forced is the now Christian to admit that it is true. Okay. They can, they can see okay. Jesus is Lord. All right, let me take you a little further. If hell, or we're calling it hell, but if the lake of fire is eternal for people who reject Jesus, I want to ask you something. Mm -hmm. If it's eternal... Yes. What is its purpose? 
uh, to make people not want to go there. I mean, I don't know what its purpose is. I don't. I, I no, think no, it's, it's done. The, the world is done. We're in heaven. They're in hell. What's its purpose? God has them sizzling forever. What is God's purpose? Of they're never going to get out. So what is its purpose, Dan? Well, I don't know what its purpose. Okay, is, it, it, look at. We, I, look I don't at, know what the purpose is of a lot of. Look at. We are. are we are told to worship God with our mind too. Our heart, our soul, our mind, and our mind tells us that if someone is in hell burning forever and they never get out, the purpose can only be one thing, one thing, because there's no redeeming value to it. It's for punishment, you see? Yeah. Okay? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, You'll agree with I that. thought you were implying that there was a restorative purpose. Uh, no, no, no. I'm saying they never get out. It can't be restorative, okay? So yeah. they're, they're in hell burning forever and ever, and God says, that pleases me. Because they're being punished forever and ever and ever. Well, and, I mean, that's a very human argument, and, well, I, and I think we could go on and on Who's forever. more like, human? Who's more loving and human, me or God? Well, let me, let me put, you're, you're sort of trying to paint me into a corner, which No, I I'm just trying to get I, you I to see. I and your passion. Um, I know, I know, but Dan, I'm just trying to get you to see that everything you've given me, there is a side to it that says to me that that's illogical. I don't understand that at all. Well, then, then answer me this. Do, does the devil and his angels get purged when he goes to the lake and fire so that they can join Jesus in heaven? I will say this. The devil and his angels rebelled in the presence of knowledge. We do not. So they are different species. I don't know what it is. The Bible doesn't tell us. So I don't know how that works with them being in God's presence and rebelling versus those of us who aren't and came to a world that we inherit sin and then we get thrown into hell because we yeah. followed the but, sin. You know, God so Satan and his values, angels are not a really good argument. You said that God, God's highest valued uh, commodity is our free will. And I think that's what's at play here. I think God values free will so much that he will let people, as he does on earth, he will let people make decisions that are catastrophic for them. But for they what have, purpose? They, they, they do this on earth, and I think they do this in eternity. I mean, I... I, I but for what purpose, I, I love, Dan? I would love for purgatory to be true, then everybody would be redeemed, but it's too much like universalism. And that's too. And universalism and annihilationism are kind of the same thing, because there's no eternal punishment. No, Dan, for, no, 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 Dan. Universalism says there is no hell. That is not universalism. Universal no, no, I know, but in the sense that it, it, uh, it frees people from eternal suffering. Annihilationism does okay, it. Okay, let me ask you, how long is a billion years enough to suffer? A billion, a billion, how about a trillion? Well, I don't think it, there is such a thing as time. Okay, but it drives people crazy. It drives Christians crazy that people are going to get out. Why? Oh, no, Why no, does no, it drive us crazy? I'd be, I'd be overjoyed if they got out. Well, if you would be overjoyed, what do you think God would be? My, my position is that I can't, I don't see sufficient evidence to hold the position okay, of watch the, in the scripture. Watch the shows and, and, and you will see sufficient evidence. All right, my brother? Well, God bless you. Keep up the good work, and, and uh, I, I wish you every success in your, uh, in your online program. Thanks so much, Dan. God bless you. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. We're going to Mark and Boise quick. Uh, Mark on three. Uh, we're going to, hold on. Who is this? Hold on. We're going to Mark on four. This is why I get paid billions to do this. Nine, three. Mark, you're on the air. Hey, Sean, I just had one question for yeah. you. you. Have you ever heard of Titus? Joseph Flavius. Yeah. The Flavians? Not the Flavians, but I've heard of Titus Joseph Flavius. He makes a very good candy. No, Sorry. no, I'm talking No, I have heard Peter. of Flavius. Go ahead. Andy, I was just wondering, do you, uh, okay, do, they, do you believe that uh, Keep going. during his time that he, uh, that what am I trying to say? That he created Christianity? Uh, no. I don't think Titus Joseph Flavius created it. All right. How come they didn't talk about Jesus in his time? Because he uh, wasn't around or what? Why uh, did it take the New Testament to bring Jesus into our lives? Well, I think, I think those 12 apostles, they said yeah. that they, I think they said, this is how it went, Mark. They got together. They said, listen. Let's put our businesses aside. Let's go out. Let's wander around independently, not with each other like a gang, but independently. Let's get thrown in jail and beaten, and let's get martyred and perpetuate this, this myth called Jesus. And I think that they wrote a book, 
about it, and I think that that book just continues forward and suckers like me buy into it. All right. Well, that sounds good. I was just watching a video on that, and I thought, wow. Uh, hey, thanks for calling Mark and Boise. We love you. Okay, man. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, no pot before calling the show, especially hashish. All right. Uh, David in Hickory, North Carolina. David, you're on the air. Hey, hey David, you're on the air. Hey, okay. Hey, Sean. Hey, how you doing? Good. Um, I just have a question. Like you, um, it seems like you're later on going to be making the point that ion, 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 the ion, the, the translated uh, forever and ever doesn't mean forever and ever. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Well, what do you do in like in passages like First Timothy one seventeen that says? Now the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be in honor and glory forever and ever. Exact same term. I think it means exactly what it says in the Greek. It means it's age-related. He is the God of age to age. That's what Ionos means. It means age. Now, I'm not saying God isn't eternal, but I'm saying that that's what Ionos means. It means age. So age has a beginning and an end, a period. And that's what Ionos means. So he doesn't get glory and honor forever and ever. Just no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying what the scripture says. Translated correctly, looking at the verse, Ionos means age. So you, because the King James translators looked at it and said, well, God is forever and ever, and we can't just put he's the God of age to age, we're going to change this and put eternal. I'm just sticking yeah. true. Read Vine's uh, uh, biblical expository. Uh, read some of the other literal translations of Scripture, and you'll get away from this morphing of Scripture to fit uh, doctrinal needs. And Ionos uh, is a big one. Oh, I, no, no, I'm a seminary student. I've had a couple years of, of Greek. I, I know what Ion means, but my, my point is, too, is I, uh, Ion tames away, you know, eternal life. Is, is eternal life not eternal? It's age-related, and that's why the, the passage in Hebrews 1.13 struck me when it said Jesus would sit at the right hand of the Father until. And I said, wait, you mean he's not there forever and ever and ever? No, it's until he puts all things under his feet. And that, to me, says an age. Now, it doesn't mean, yeah. it doesn't mean that God isn't eternal. It just means that if we're going to be honest with translation, we have to be honest. And it means yeah. an age. It, it, it does, but it's all, you know, words only have meaning within a context. Within the context, that's why it's translated that way. There's plenty ever, of ever, just like eternal life is forever. No, there's plenty of other words, uh, David, that the Greeks have that mean forever and ever. But they're not used and ever used in the sense of punishment. They're only used in other things. So, and we're going to get to that and show them to you. So the Greek, tra- the Greek writers, the translators could have easily seen those Greek words and said, ah, but they don't. I'm just being honest. I, I, our thing is try to be as honest as possible without manipulating. There's no manipulation here. So I'm giving it to you as it, but give me a chance over the next three weeks to lay out all these passages and explain them and then come back with the argument on uh, Ion and Ionos. I know. I mean, and I, I really appreciate, you know, your um, stand for truth. And I mean, I'm not, you know, yeah. trying to, you know, condemn you or anything for this, because honestly, that's what you're doing. But I'm just concerned because years ago, are you familiar with Rob Bell? Hey, Rob Bell says there's no hell. I, I'm no, not saying that. No, 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 that. no, no, no. no. In, in his book, Love Wins, he says there is a hell, but it's not forever. It's basically the I agree exact with him. same thing, exact same argument. I agree with him then. Because he's yep. Rob Bell and he's, a, he's an emergent church guy and he's got these crazy ideas, he's right on that one. But he's not alone. There are plenty yep. of people, if you look at the first century church fathers, none of them taught eternal punishment. None of them. It came about by Augustine. That's another thing that we're going to expose and examine. But the Christian church today has stepped in and bought into this. And man, it's, it's heinous. It's ugly. And it brings out the worst in people, not the best. David, we are absolutely out of time. I'm sorry. Thank you for calling. We'll talk again. Okay, thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Hey, a lot of good calls. We appreciate them. Keep tuning in. Give me a chance to make my arguments. I'm not saying I am absolutely dead set, but I'm saying when it comes to weighing the evidence, I think there's far more evidence for God bringing about his ultimate will through all sorts of purposes and epochs of time to to reconcile all people who he created in love to bring them back to him.
That's the point. We'll keep working on it. Love you. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Good job, audience.